Gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, is one of those conditions often seen in primary care clinics. And the American College of Gastroenterology has just issued a revised set of guidelines on it. You're listening to Clinical Conversations, and in this edition, we are looking at those revised guidelines through the eyes of two clinicians, David Bjorkman and Alan Bress. They will discuss how those new recommendations will fit into clinical practice. Dr. Bjorkman is, a, is an emeritus professor of gastroenterology at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He was a 20-year contributor to NEJM Journal Watch Gastroenterology and served as its editor-in-chief. Dr. Brett is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's the editor-in-chief of the NEJM Journal Watch publication series and has been editor-in-chief of the General Medicine Newsletter since 1994. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. So we're going to talk today about this new GERD uh, guideline, and it's a pretty long guideline, um, 40 recommendation in there, recommendations in there, many of which are targeted towards difficult cases seen by gastroenterologists. But a fair number of the recommendations are very germane to general medicine and primary care practice. And that's uh, what we're going to focus on uh, in this discussion. Um, thanks to David Bjorkman for joining us. Uh, as Joe mentioned, uh, David is an academic uh, gastroenterologist. He is not an esophagus subspecialist. And I think that's an advantage here because David is a, a very well-rounded general gastroenterologist and, and I think understands the perspective of primary care clinicians as well. So I think that's what will make this a good discussion. So I'm gonna start by talking about the recommendation in the guideline that intrigued me the most because it diverges somewhat from what typical primary care docs do. And that is the recommendation that when you see a new patient that you diagnosed that you diagnose GERD in, who has no alarm symptoms, you start with an eight-week trial of a PPI, and then you stop it and see what happens. And of course, behind the PPI, uh, one can in institute lifestyle changes and so forth, but we're going to concentrate on the drug part of it here. So I'm going to start this with a case. I'm seeing, let's say, a 40 or 50-year-old healthy person I haven't seen for a year or two, and he comes in saying, you know, over the last year or so, I've begun to have more heartburn and reflux. I think I have this thing that you docs call GERD, and I'd like to be started on some medication. So according to the guideline, I make sure that there are no alarm symptoms. And um, once I've established that, and I address some lifestyle changes that might be contributing, I would write a prescription for eight weeks of a PPI, after which I would stop it to see what happens. And there are three possible scenarios of what could happen here. One is the patient doesn't respond symptomatically, in which case I refer the patient to gastroenterology for endoscopy and whatever other workup is necessary. And I think that's what most of us would do. The second scenario is the patient does respond. He says, yeah, I got great response from it. And after we stop it after eight weeks, the symptoms don't recur. And in that patient, we continue to follow them in outpatient primary care. And I think that's what most of us would do. But the third possibility is the one that intrigues me. The patient responds very well, stops the drug after eight weeks, at which time the symptoms return. And according to the guideline, at that point, I make an immediate referral to gastroenterology for 
endoscopy plus or minus other studies. Whereas in routine practice, probably what most docs do would be to say, okay, you got a good response. Their symptoms are coming back. I'm going to put you back on the PPI and we'll follow you. And then there's some sort of indefinite uh, duration of treatment, uh, hopefully not forever, but uh, something on the order of months to a year or, or more. So I'll stop there, David. That was the, the, the interesting thing that intrigued me the most, because I think it does depart from what many primary care docs do. And do you agree with uh, that uh, tack in the guideline? And, and if so, why? Well, Alan, I think that I, I, I look at this a little bit differently than sometimes uh, uh, primary care doctors do, because I'm looking at it through the lens of a gastroenterologist. And I think endoscopy uh, does does two things. It can either uh, rule GERD in or out, and both of them are very are very very important, uh, or help to rule it out. It, it can't rule it out entirely by itself. But if endoscopy shows that somebody has LA grade C or D esophagitis, that makes the diagnosis of GERD, and I think that's mentioned in in, in the guideline. But you can also identify other things. You can see things like eosinophilic esophagitis, which can only be diagnosed by endoscopy with biopsies. And then um, as a gastroenterologist, I'm perhaps more concerned about the presence of Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is usually present on the initial endoscopy when somebody has GERD. And if somebody has GERD that doesn't respond to a PPI or responds and then comes back, so let's call this persistent GERD rather than refractory GERD, then there's a possibility of having Barrett's esophagus. And of course, if they have risk factors for Barrett's esophagus, then the, then then ruling that out becomes even more important. But um, being able to say that somebody doesn't have Barrett's esophagus is very important because because it's it's unusual for Barrett's esophagus to to occur in between endoscopies. If somebody has more than one endoscopy for GERD, to not see it the first time and then to see it the second time is unusual. So you can't actually, a normal endoscopy doesn't rule out gastroesophageal reflux disease because a normal endoscopy is actually the most common endoscopic finding for people with GERD, but it does identify other potential causes that tell you that the patient is having symptoms that are not from GERD, like eosinophilic esophagitis, and it can identify potential potentially complicated GERD with, with erosive esophagitis and with Barrett's esophagus. And symptoms aren't always uh, the best marker for the presence of, of those, certainly not for Barrett's esophagus. So I think that there are people, including myself, that think that people who have persistent GERD probably deserve at least one, one endoscopy during their lifetime just to make sure they don't have Barrett's esophagus. And so by doing that, you, I think you accomplish many things. Additionally, if you read the guideline, the, uh, the, the other step in patients who, who have uh, recurrent symptoms after a trial of, of, of PPI therapy is, is to do uh, uh, what they call reflux monitoring. Now, when they discuss reflux monitoring, we often think of pH testing, and that can occur by placing a Bravo capsule, but can also be uh, impedance testing, which uses a catheter. And so if you're using a Bravo capsule, that's placed with an endoscopy. So you can actually place the, the pH capsule, the Bravo capsule, at the time of, of the endoscopic evaluation of the esophagus. So you can actually do both things at the same time, shortening your time to making the diagnosis. So if somebody has a normal endoscopy and they don't have any evidence of, of acid reflux with a Bravo capsule, then they probably don't have acid reflux. 
They could have non-acid reflux, which requires impedance, manometer, uh, in, impedance monitoring, uh, which measures not just acidic, but also non-acidic contents. And so those are two different tests, the, the Bravo capsule and the impedance uh, monitoring with a, with, a, with a catheter that together can, with a negative endoscopy, can, can really rule out the diagnosis of GERD so that you know that you have to think of other things that may be causing the patient's symptoms, and those patients aren't going to benefit from PPI therapy. Now, let me uh, ask a question, and maybe I don't have the pathophysiology right, but what's so magical about the eight-week um, trial period? So here's what I'm thinking. For we, we often think of GERD as more of a, you know, a chronic condition or a persistent condition, unlike, say, an acute peptic ulcer where you give the patient uh, two months of PPI on top of eradicating the cause, which is often either H. pylori or an NSAID. And then you would expect the symptoms to be gone after the, uh, after the eight weeks. Here, we're talking about the development of lower esophageal sphincter incompetence, perhaps, and maybe some lifestyle things. But we wouldn't necessarily expect for most patients to have an eight-week course, if I'm thinking of, of GERD uh, correctly, and maybe I'm not, an eight-week course to eradicate the symptoms and stop the drug, and they have no recurrent symptoms. Can you help me with that? Yeah, well, I think that the, the guideline is is pretty specific in talking about the eight-week trial as being a diagnostic test as well as a therapeutic uh, approach. And I, the, the eight weeks is not magic in any way. There are patients who respond sooner, but some patients do take up to eight weeks. And so based upon the literature and how long it takes for patient symptoms to respond, that's the eight week, that's where the eight weeks comes from. And if they don't respond within the eight weeks, then we would say that they have persistent GERD and probably need to have optimization of their PPI therapy because most patients aren't really taking their PPIs correctly. So making sure they're taking their PPIs correctly and then increasing the dose of the PPI to see if they'll respond to that. And at that point in time, I think we get to the to the situation that you describe in your practice, where if somebody has persistent GERD, then you would refer them to en- for endoscopy uh, uh, to make sure they don't have something else that's going on or to confirm that, in fact, their symptoms are from GERD, because you can have functional symptoms that are that feel exactly like GERD. And so documenting that this is really an acid-related disease allows you to make the commitment to acid reduction therapy in some form to help alleviate that disease, whether it's chronic therapy or whether it's intermittent on-demand therapy, whatever it may be. But if the patient doesn't have acid reflux, then that therapy is not going to be able to help the patient's symptoms. So, so I understand um, your analysis, David, but what that says to me then is that the one subcategory of patients that can, quote, uh, escape, if you will, I don't mean it that way, being referred to a gastroenterologist would be the patient for whom this eight-week course is successful. You stop the drug, there's no recurrent symptoms. So presumably they had something in, in, in that period of time that provoked heartburn or reflux that got better for whatever reason. And it's that small subgroup that then doesn't get referred on. Right. Or they may have had a hypersensitive esophagus at that point in time, and which, which then can resolve with treatment. And I think that what, 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 I, what I've seen in my practice is that patients who will have GERD that's bad enough for them to, to come and see a doctor and certainly to see a gastroenterologist, 
can often respond to, to a trial of, of PPI therapy, once a day PPI therapy. And then when you stop that, that therapy, their, their symptoms may not come back for a period of time. And if they do come back, then you can treat them with a little bit of a different approach. You don't have to have them on daily PPI therapy. They can take PPI therapy as needed. So if they start to have heartburn symptoms, they can take the PPI and then, and then they can stop it after a few days and see and, and may not come back. Or they can even step down to an H2 receptor antagonist to be taken once a day at night. And, uh, and so I think what it, what it does is it sorts out a group of patients who may have GERD or may have a predisposition to GERD that was, that was significantly symptomatic and may become less symptomatic and can be treated with, with on-demand therapy or step-down therapy later on if it does come back after they you know, make it better for a month after, after their, their PPI uh, trial. Then, yeah. and I think I think it identifies that. And I should make the point that when we're talking about endoscopy and reflux monitoring uh, it, for diagnosis, that's that's done after the patient has been off of the PPI for probably at least two weeks, and some people say even more than that. Right, so that we don't mask esophagitis. Uh, for for example. Um, you mentioned earlier um, the taking the PPI properly, and I, I suspect that, that people don't pay much attention to that. The guideline makes a big deal about inquiring about this 30 to 60 minute before meals. Do you want to just say a quick word about that? Yeah, I think that that's probably the most common problem in patients who aren't responding is, is they may have other pills they're taking and they take all of their pills together once a day in the morning or, you know, and they just take their PPI with the rest of their pills. And sometimes they do that with meals. But the way that proton pumps work is they actually bind to the proton pump in the parietal cell of the stomach. And in order to bind to those proton pumps, they have to be activated. And the proton pumps are activated by meals. And so you, you, if, if you have the PPI on board before you eat a meal, then the PPI is present when those proton pumps are activated. They bind to the proton pump irreversibly, and those proton pumps can never make another hydrogen ion again. The, the cell has to make new proton pumps in order to do that. But if, 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 the, if you don't have the PPI on board in, in its maximal concentration, when the proton pumps are activated, then you're not getting maximal binding to those proton pumps. So that's why 30 to 60 minutes before meals is the optimal time. What I tell my patients is take your proton pump inhibitor first thing when you wake up and then go about doing everything else that you're doing, you know, shower, shave, whatever you're going to do. And then you can take, and then by the time you get around to eating breakfast, your proton pumps on board and then it'll be effective. Right. Unless you're the person that wolfs down breakfast five minutes after you <laughs> get out of bed and then you got a problem, but I get it. I get it. Um, one quick second case scenario, and then we'll move on a little bit uh, onto on a couple of other topics. But um, a second case I'm thinking about is I'm seeing a new patient, let's say the same 50-year-old guys before, but it's a new patient to me. And the patient says, you know, for 10 years, I've had heartburn and reflux. And for much of that time, I've been on a PPI. Sometimes I stop it. So now we have a 10-year history of no development of any alarm symptoms and the patient remains healthy and, and so forth. Would you send that patient, who, if, if the patient's never had an endoscopy, after this sort of 10 year of on and off history without an endoscopy, would you send that patient to a gastroenterologist for a single endoscopy? Absolutely. I think the case for endoscopy in that patient is even more compelling 
because with persistent symptoms like that, they're, I think they're more likely to have Barrett's esophagus. There's still the chance that they may have something else like eosinophilic esophagitis that needs to be ruled out. And so, you know, they're, they're often on therapy for 10 years. I think we need to make sure that they're on the right therapy. And, and there are patients who have non-acid reflux for whom we need to think of other ways to treat those symptoms. And escalating PPI therapy to twice a day uh, which is done for extraesophageal symptoms and and for persistent or, or or refractory symptoms, is something that I think should be done after we're sure that the patient actually has GERD. Got it. All right. So you brought up what was going to be my next question. Um, so the patient who has somewhat refractory symptoms but is not, we're not ready to send them for an invasive uh, uh, surgical procedure, for example. The guideline sort of gives equal weight to double it to to switching to P. To going up to BID or twice daily PPI versus adding an evening H2 receptor antagonist. How should the average generalist think of those options? And now we're assuming it's a patient who's had the adequate workup that you've mentioned. We're not worried about complications. Right. Well, I think, you know, the step to surgery is, is a major step because there, you know, surgery is not without complications. And almost everybody who has surgery ends up back on a PPI at some point in time. But, you know, the literature would also say that people who have surgery are, are more satisfied with their therapy than, than people who, are, who receive chronic medical therapy. So I, I think that you can, you know, neither approach is necessarily wrong. And it's a, it's a conversation that you have to have with the patient. And also you have to look and, and, and see what you have available to you in terms of treatment options. Do you have good surgeons who have a good track record of doing, of doing anti-reflux surgery? Um, you know, do you have endoscopists that can do, you know, endoscopic therapy with, uh, you know, with, with, with magnetic therapy to close the lower esophageal sphincter? And that, that becomes very complex in terms of, you know, what's the patient's overall medical condition. If they're obese, you know, the surgery doesn't go as well and it's more difficult. They have more complications. So there, you, you put a lot of, a lot of things into that, into that equation to see whether or not you think the patient will do better with chronic medical therapy, or they might do better with, with, with surgical therapy. If you would address just for a moment, the, the choice in primary care between going to twice daily PPI versus adding an H2 receptor antagonist at night or, or both. Any, is that just basically trial and error? I think so. I think it's trial and error. Not everybody responds to an, an H2 receptor antagonist at night, but when people respond, it can really be remarkable. It can really make a big difference for them. So I think that, that you know, going up on the dose uh, going up to twice daily therapy is something that I, I would routinely do before even considering surgery. And, and I, I would be comfortable in continuing somebody who responds to twice daily therapy, but has recurrent symptoms when you drop back down to once daily therapy uh, to continue them on chronic medical therapy. Let me interrupt. If the patient does have predominantly nighttime symptoms, is it better, and, and an H2 receptor antagonist is tried in the evening, is that better to be taken with the evening meal or at bedtime? Well, for the H2 receptor antagonist, it doesn't matter as much because the H2 receptor antagonist uh, re binds to the histamine receptor, and that's a gastrin-mediated 
acid uh, secretion issue. It's not the same as the PPI. So if you're taking a twice daily PPI, that second dose needs to be taken 30 to 60 minutes before dinner. And so it's, you know, but the H2 receptor antagonist has a more rapid onset of action and it acts through a different mechanism. It's through the, it's the, through the histamine receptor, which is, which is gastro-mediated acid secretion. So the timing of the H2 receptor antagonist, that can be taken at bedtime. That okay. doesn't have to be taken before a meal. Okay. But I, I think that um, one thing that I would like to mention is before going to surgery, uh, the patient has to have a very thorough workup, which also includes esophageal manometry. Esophageal manometry is not necessary for making the diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux disease, but it is necessary before going to, 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 to anti-reflux surgery to rule out things like achalasia and also to make sure that the patient has, has enough esophageal propulsion to be able to push a food bolus through the wrap that's going to be placed there for the for the anti-reflux surgery. So I don't know of any good esophageal surgeons who won't who will do esophageal anti-reflux surgery without having both all of the all of the values, not just a pH uh, study, but also an impedance uh, study and esophageal manometry to show that their esophagus is able to to push the bolus through and they don't have achalasia. David, the last thing I want to touch on uh, today is this issue of extraesophageal GERD symptoms. Frequently in practice, chronic cough and chronic hoarseness that uh, can't be attributed to anything else are uh, blamed on GERD. And that sometimes happens even with patients who have no symptoms of reflux uh, and have no heartburn. Uh, I see both primary care physicians and ENT docs and pulmonologists try empiric therapy, but placebo-controlled trials show that empiric therapy in such patients often doesn't resolve the problem. So uh, I was wondering if you would say a few words about the approach to these extraesophageal GERD symptoms. Yes, the actually the guideline goes into considerable discussion on this issue for both laryngeal and pulmonary symptoms, both chronic cough and the idea that that asthma exacerbations are due to reflux. And and what the guideline says and what I agree with is that if a patient has characteristic symptoms of reflux, uh, and it could be acidic or non-acidic reflux that are associated temporally with with you know laryngeal or pulmonary symptoms, then then treating uh, with a PPI may be reasonable, but it's going to require a higher dose of PPI twice daily and longer therapy. But in the absence of of some symptoms suggests that the patient has GERD, that just an empiric trial of acid reduction therapy is unlikely to be effective. And uh, in that situation, if the if the clinician has a true suspicion that GERD is there, then I think that testing for for reflux and it particularly with an impedance reflux monitoring to identify non-acid reflux as well might be, might be appropriate to guide therapy. Okay, that's great. I think we'll stop there. As we said earlier on, this is a very long and detailed guideline. It has a lot of excellent uh, tips that we haven't discussed today, both for generalists and for gastroenterologists. And I uh, hope that some readers will actually take a look at uh, both our journal watch coverage of the guideline and have a look at the actual guideline itself. So I want to thank David Bjorkman for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. That was our 285th episode. We come to you from the NEGM group.
and from the writers and editors of NEJM Journal Watch. Our executive producer is Kristen Kelly, and I'm Joey Elia. Thanks for listening.